Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you and be with you this morning. It's good to continue in our series through the book of Philippians, this great letter from Paul to the church at Philippi. Um, Paul comes now in our passage this morning to something that he's told the Philippians before. He says, no trouble for me to write this again to you. And of course, he's told them this before because this is a truth. What we're talking about this morning is a truth that's at the core of the gospel. It's at the core of Christianity. Um, it's at the core of our faith. And, and though this is a truth that he has many times told them, it's, it's also one they need to keep remembering. And it's no, it, Paul says, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you again, it's safe for me if I just go ahead and tell you this again. And he starts off by saying, you should rejoice in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. But then he says, watch out. Watch out. And we, uh, like the church at Philippi, like the church throughout the ages, are in danger of forgetting the truth and so of losing our joy, of not rejoicing in the Lord. Your joy is in danger. And, and haven't you experienced this? If you're a Christian, haven't you experienced this every day of your Christian walk, right? The struggle uh, to, to remember the truth and rejoice in the Lord. We need this. We need reminding. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we need, uh, we need weekly gathering. Like we need to come and remember again and again and again. And my prayer is that the Spirit would remind us today of the truth that leads us to rejoice in the Lord. Number one, uh, what, is, what is the threat of joy? We'll, we'll ask four questions. One, what's the threat of joy? Two, why is it so dangerous? Three, what truth will guard us? And number four, how do we remain in joy? Let's pray and we'll, we'll dive right in. Father, thank you um, this morning for your word. Uh, thank you for this passage, Lord, that is so great and glorious, um, that I, I know that I can't do it justice. And so I pray that you would speak to us, that, that you, um, Holy Spirit, would, would preach to our hearts um, what you want us to hear, that we would listen, we would be open to you, and, and, uh, and Lord, that you would set us free, and we would understand this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. First, what is the threat? What's the threat that Paul lays out here? That verse two says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And Paul uses strong language here uh, to call out some of his most common opponents in the New Testament. Uh, these are the, the Judaizers, right? He, he uh, speaks against the Judaizers in Galatians, most notably, but also in Romans, you can see a lot against uh, them as well. These were Jewish Christians, Jews associated with the church, who, who taught and encouraged Christians to keep the Old Testament law of Moses, okay? Um, so the cornerstone of, of their concern was circumcision, Right, the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. This is why Paul calls them those who mutilate the flesh. He, he's using hyperbole um, to, to describe the act of circumcision. And they would tell the Gentile Christians that as God's people uh, who believed in Jesus, they needed to then follow the law, uh, of which the, the fundamental and the first step was to receive what was the outward sign of the distinctiveness and the purity of God's people throughout history, circumcision. This was even a shorthand for being a part of God's people, right? Israel, Israelites would call themselves the circumcision. Uh, and, and to call someone uncircumcised was an insult, like, oh, that uncircumcised Philistine, 
Right? Or they would call they would even call Gentiles dogs, those those dirty, uncircumcised dogs, right? And this is why Paul uses the word dogs to say, watch out for the dogs. He's using their own language, what they would call uncircumcised people, to call them. And look at what he says in verse three. For we are the circumcision, we're the true circumcision. The ones who put who worship by the Spirit of God boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. And this is the core of Paul's contention with the Judaizers, these, these opponents. They put confidence in the flesh. So both literally in their body, in the circumcision of their body, and metaphorically in, in all that, that represents is their law keeping, like what they can do. I think the flesh here, uh, I think it means what the natural person can do apart from their dependence on God. What the natural person can do apart from their dependence on God. So in a way, of course, and you could say in a way, we can't do anything without God, right? We all, in him, we live and move and have our being. Of course, yes, in a sense, that is true. Um, But in another sense, there, there are things we can accomplish by our own power. There are things we can accomplish in our own strength without depending on God. And this is the flesh, and the Judaizers put confidence in the, in the flesh. And this is the great threat that has taken many forms throughout the ages. And the great threat, I think, today to our joy in Jesus. The threat is to trust Jesus plus something. Right? Jesus plus something. The, the opponents here, they weren't, they weren't denying Christ. Right? They're not denying Christ overtly. They were part of the church, right? But, but rather, rather than boasting only in Christ, putting no confidence in the flesh, they boasted in circumcision and they put some confidence in the flesh. Paul jumps in here with a long section of, of uh, what's, what sounds like bragging. He's bragging on himself. And he does it for effect, right? He's a, he's a genius, a uh, master uh, of, of, of thought and of writing. And, and he says, hey, if you want to put confidence in the flesh... I've got you beat, right? Verse four, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more, right? Circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness that's in the law, blameless. Paul says, hey, you wanna talk about circumcision? I was circumcised the eighth day, just like the law says, Right, I, I was, I'm an Israelite, not a nominal Israelite. I was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. I'm not from an obscure tribe, right? I'm, I'm not from, from Zebulun. No, no, Benjamin, right? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I know my lineage. I was, I was a Pharisee in regard to the law. I kept the law rigorously, right? The Pharisees, I think, get a bad rap because of their, their, uh, their conflict with Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, but the Pharisees were very well respected, right? They, they were the ones who took the, the word of God seriously. They're the ones everyone wanted to be like. It's like saying, I was a well-respected pastor. I was zealous, Paul says, even, even persecuting the church. I took my faith so seriously, I was willing to fight any threat to it. Regarding righteousness that's in the law, I was blameless. I was blameless. No, don't get hung up there. Paul's not saying that he was sinless. Um, I think it hangs on what he means by righteousness that is in the law. And I think that it's clear that, you know, from the context that he means the outward keeping of God's law as the Pharisees interpreted it at this time. 
Okay, so if someone looked at my life, Paul says, if someone looked at my life, they, they wouldn't have seen any deviation from the law of God. Right? I was the right type of person and I was doing the right things with all my might. Oh, I can put confidence in the flesh, Paul says. The, the threat, the threat of Jesus plus something is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. We, we constantly, I think, fall back into and are tempted to fall back into reliance on the flesh. And so here we need to ask, I think, where we might be tempted to put confidence in our flesh. How, how do you think that you are the right type of person doing the right things with all your might? What would your list be if you played the, the boast in the flesh game that Paul's playing? Maybe it'd be something like this. I was born in a Christian home to Christian parents. I was raised in the church. I knew the Roman road when I was four years old. I didn't drink or chew or associate with those who do. Pastor Barry taught me that one. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a conservative. I'm liberal. I'm moderate. I'm libertarian. <laughs> Keep going, right? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a homeschooler. I'm a public schooler. I'm a private schooler. I'm part of the right groups, socially, economically, racially, politically. I'm raising my family the right way. Well, I'm intelligent. I'm educated. I'm smart. I'm street smart. I've got a certain amount of money or security. I, I've got my act together. I'm a good American. I wear a mask. I don't wear a mask. I'm vaccinated. I'm not vaccinated. I, I care about the right things. I feed the poor. I care for orphans. I fight against racism. I advocate for the unborn. Or I avoid the wrong things. I don't cheat on my spouse. I don't do drugs. I don't watch the trash that other people watch on TV. I don't, I don't fill my body with junk food like other people do. I don't eat that poison. You know, like, we, <laughs> the list could keep going, couldn't it? We could, keep, we could go on and on and on. Our greatest threat, hear me, I don't think our greatest threat is, is to, to just reject Jesus overtly and go our own way. Like, I don't think most often that's the biggest danger. Like, if someone tries to offer to sell me, you know, crystal meth in the bathroom after the service, I'm not going to struggle to say no. I'm, I'm not. So don't, if you're, if you're planning that, then you don't have to worry about it. Uh, but like, like, that's not the biggest danger, but what is the danger for me every single day? Our greatest threat is more subtle and it's more deadly. It's to trust in Jesus and then to also put confidence in the flesh. It's Jesus plus what I embrace or Jesus plus what I avoid or Jesus plus my virtue or Jesus plus who I am or who we are. How do you know if you're trusting your own righteousness instead of Christ? What might some signs be? 
There could be a lot. Fear, anxiety, feeling inadequate, feeling, feeling superior to others, a judgmental attitude toward others who just don't get it, despairing, despairing when you fail, a roller coaster spiritual life where, where whenever you're doing well, you're, you're sure of God's favor. And whenever you, you struggle and sin, you're, you're sure of God's disapproval. Joylessness. I, any sort of withdrawal from God, from His Word, from prayer, being His presence, from community, His church. These could all be signs that you may be trusting your own righteousness. Why is this threat so dangerous? Number two, why is this threat so dangerous? What's the big deal as long as I trust Jesus, you might say? So what if I'm proud of my family? So what if I'm proud of my political views? So, so what if, I, if I'm proud that I, I live a moral life? Isn't that a good thing? Look at what Paul says next. Verse seven, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Paul says, all these things that were a gain to me, I now consider a loss. What I thought was in my profit column, I, I realize now it's, it was all liability. Right? In fact, everything's a liability compared to knowing Christ. I've suffered the loss of all things. I consider it all dung so that I may gain Christ. Now, let's be careful here to understand what Paul isn't saying. He's not saying that being an Israelite, having the law and following it was morally bad or wrong. He says in other places how, how uh, blessed Israel was to have the law, to have God's revelation, right? That they, they, were, they were immensely blessed in that way. And I don't think Paul would trade his background away if he could. I think he would, he would not, I think he would want to change not persecuting the church. I think that's one area where that he would change, but I don't think he would uncircumcise himself if he could. No, he's not saying being Jewish is bad, but he is saying all of those things, as far as they can be relied on, get in the way of knowing Jesus. Paul says, I consider them as dung, so that, it says, so that I may gain Christ. This is why this threat is so dangerous. The danger is that we would miss out on Christ because of the good things in our lives that we are most proud of. The danger is that we would miss out on Christ because of the good things in our lives that we're most proud of. He, he, Paul's clearly saying here, whoever you are, whatever you're good, you're good you've done or can do, you have to leave it all behind. Treat it like horse manure. 
And then you can gain Christ. Because the truth is, we can't actually trust Jesus and trust our works. If we trust ourselves, we aren't trusting Christ. And Paul says this in Galatians 5. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify that every man who gets himself circumcised, that he's obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. To trust Christ is to despair of trusting your own righteousness at all. When someone goes into witness protection, um, they have to leave their whole life behind. It wouldn't work for someone uh, to, to just leave their bad relationships behind, but try to maintain their good relationships, even in their new place. No, no, no. They have to sever all ties with their former life and embrace fully their new identity. And we, we think about conversion as leaving our bad things, and it is that, right? We turn from our sins. We admit that God is right about those things and that we were wrong. We ask for his forgiveness, but did you know that we also turn from our good things? We repent from relying on our good things. We turn from anything that we might trust in and we depend exclusively on Jesus. And it's not just even a one-time deal, right? Look at Paul's verb tense. He says, everything that was gained to me, I have considered a loss in the past, right? More than that, I also consider Present tense. I consider everything. I still consider everything to be a loss. This is an ongoing process for the Christian to turn to Christ, both from our sin and from relying on our good works. Number three, what truth will guard us? What truth will guard us? Verse nine, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. The truth that guards us, the truth that we have to hold to at all costs is justification by faith. We are made right with God, not by anything we do, Right, we're justified, made right with God, not by anything we do, but by trusting what Jesus has done. Look at what Paul says. Be, to be found in him, that's in Christ, unified with Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law. There's nothing he can do, nothing you or I can do. We can't please God, we can't be good enough. But instead, having one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. In order to stand before God, we need righteousness. Right? The whole Bible says this. The only person, the only people who can stand before God are those who are righteous. Righteousness is God's perfect goodness. And only the righteous can stand before God. Right? Who can ascend his holy hill? Right? Only the one who is good. Only the one who doesn't, doesn't keep evil in his heart. Only the righteous could ever be accepted into heaven, into God's presence. 
And we are all unrighteous. We've all fallen short of God's standard. We know this. We fall short of our own standard. (laughs) Don't we fall short of uh, the greatest, the holy standard of God? Of course we do. So how will unrighteous man stand before a righteous God? There's only two options. One is you can stand in your own righteousness. Paul says this, I don't want my own righteousness, a righteousness from the law. But but that's an option. You can try to stand on your own merit, on your own law keeping, how good you are. And many will. Right? Many will say, I'm a good person. I'm going to roll the dice. I think God's I think God's loving. But they will find if they do that, and you will find if you do that 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 you aren't righteous. And you'll receive the punishment that's due your unrighteousness. God is a good judge. Second option though, you can stand in your own righteousness. Second option, Paul says, I want to be found in him having a righteousness from God that's through faith. Right? He, he, this is so beautiful. This is the beauty. This is the wonder of all wonders. Right? You can stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. We, we cannot be good on our own. We cannot be righteous, but God has made a way for us to have perfect righteousness anyway. It's a gift. It's a gift that he gives us. We simply receive it by faith, united to Christ. Here's another way to put it. Would you rather stand trial for your crimes or would you rather someone else stand trial for your crimes? Because that's what happened at Golgotha. Jesus was judged guilty for your crime. And you, Christian, were given his perfect righteousness, his perfect record. And and here's Paul's point. The righteousness that we get from God by faith, Christ's righteousness, is a complete righteousness. It's complete. Tim Keller has this illustration I'd like to adapt to help explain this for us. Um, Some of you know Daniel Nowak from our church. He's a carpenter in our church, and he makes beautiful pieces of furniture. Um, and, and let's imagine that you need a dresser, right? You need a dresser, and, and he spends a year on this ornate and fantastic piece of furniture. And he, he really is an artist. I mean, his stuff is, is awesome. Um, it, you know, it, this, this dresser, it, it's detailed. Each surface is carefully shaped, stained, and sanded, and finished, and polished just to absolute perfection, okay? Let's say after a year of nonstop work, he, he brings it carefully, and he places it in your home right where it should go. All right, now, now as, you, as you and Daniel step back just to admire this piece of furniture, imagine you take a little small chisel and hammer out of, the back, out of your back pocket and go up just to add a little bit to the front of the dresser. What kind of reaction would that get out of Daniel? I would like to see it. It'd probably be something like, stop! Don't do that! It's, it's finished! And any attempt to add something to the dresser would in reality take away from it because it's complete. And when Jesus hung on the cross, do you remember what he said? He said, it is finished. Brothers and sisters, the righteousness that we have received from Jesus is finished 
and cannot be added to. He lived a life fully pleasing to God. Anything that we might try to do on top of it, anything of our own righteousness, what does Isaiah say? Is filthy rags. <laughs> right? See, he would only take away from the beauty and the perfection that is already ours. He became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. His righteousness already belongs to you. And there's just not a more freeing truth than this one. I don't know of one. Do you see what this means? We stand before God not on the basis of anything we have done. We stand clothed in what Jesus did for us. Christian, you today, right? Not a, not a future version of you. Not you once you defeat that one sin. Not you once you clean yourself up a little. Not you once you get your act together. No, no. You sitting there in the chair today, you are loved and accepted by the only one who matters, by the Father. Because you're in Jesus, Right? Maybe you're struggling with, maybe you're struggling hard with sin. And maybe, maybe you're losing that battle. Christians struggle, don't we? <laughs> we struggle. You know what God says to you in that struggle? He says, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. And, and you, I'm well pleased. How can he say that? How can he say that in the midst of your struggle? Well, because his love for you is not based on you or what you do. <laughs> it's based on Christ. It's based on Jesus and what he did. Right? When you stand before God, you stand in Christ. And so Jesus stands before the Father, and the Father loves you as he loves his own son. This has got to be so frustrating for God because he says it so often and so many times in the scripture and yet we just don't believe it, right? Like Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. It's like he's, he's saying, look at the sky, like see how high it is? That's how much I love you. Like, he's just trying to get it across. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You're like, yeah, but my sin is so, it's like, could he, could he have removed it any further? No, it's gone, right? Or, or Jesus, John 15. You're like, man, I wish Jesus would just be clear about how he feels about me. Okay, try this one. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Do you think the Father loves Jesus very much? That's how he loves you. Remain in my love. <laughs> right? Abide in my love. Make your home in my love. Never leave my love. That's where I want you to live, is in this. As the Father has loved me, I've loved you. He says it over and over and over. God couldn't love you any more than he does right now, or any less. Christian, in one billion years, you will be alive, and God will love you the same as he does today. Right? 
Like, that's just true. <laughs> it's just the truth. Oh, that we would come to know and to believe the love that he has for us. Maybe you're in here and you've always thought you had to get your act together before you, you come to God. Right? Maybe you're not a Christian. Um, and, and, and you just think, man, I just, I feel like it would make sense. I mean, that makes sense. I understand that. It's like, holy God, perfect God. Seems like I would need to clean myself up and be a little presentable to come to him. Uh, but it's, it's just an amazing thing. You don't have to. It's almost too wonderful to imagine. But you can be forgiven of all you've done and stand today, this moment, in the righteousness that comes simply by trusting Jesus. Justification um, is, is, a, is a judicial term, right? It's, it's from the courts. And so just like a judge can pronounce a verdict that changes everything in a moment, right? A judge can say, not guilty, and it changes everything. Right? In the same way, when God imputes his righteousness, so when he gives us his righteousness as a gift, it's in a moment, not guilty, righteous in Christ. It, this is baffling. This kind of grace is baffling. But I'm just telling you, it's what God does. It's what he does. You, you can walk into this room a rebel destined for wrath. And you can walk out of this room completely changed, a dearly loved son or daughter of God. You've got to surrender, of course, right? <laughs> he requires that you ask him and you trust him. But if you do, if you turn to him, you'll find that he is merciful and he's gracious. He's, he's abounding in faithful love. I hope you will. The truth that guards us is this, this amazing treasure. We're justified by faith, by receiving the righteousness of Christ. How can we remain in joy? Lastly, how can we remain in joy? Um, Herman Bovink is a Dutch theologian who I think very helpfully talks about uh, the righteousness we receive from Christ by faith. And he says this, the righteousness which justifies us, therefore, is not to be separated from the person of Christ. It does not consist of a material or spiritual gift which Christ can grant us apart from himself or which we can accept and receive apart from the person of Christ. There's no possibility of sharing in the benefits of Christ without being in fellowship with the person of Christ. And the latter invariably brings the benefits with it. In order to stand before the judgment of God, to be acquitted of all guilt and punishment, and to share in the glory of God and eternal life, we must have Christ. Not something of him, but Christ himself. The righteousness of Christ, it, it isn't like God giving you a credit card that you can just go use on his account and live your life securely, you know, with or without him in the future. Right, Bobbing says another place, it's not dead capital just lying around. You just get it. It's like you just get it in your bank account. No, no, it's more like God adopting you, bringing you to live in the mansion, uh, and then living life together from here on out and him providing everything in your new life. You, you can't separate the righteousness that we receive from Christ from his person, the person of Christ. And you see this here in Paul, don't you, in this passage, the, the great tragedy for Paul, I don't think, I mean, you can, you can see it, I don't think it would be losing righteousness. 
No, it would be not knowing Christ. Do you see what he says over and over? I've lost everything for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Right? I consider all my good deeds as done. Why? So that I may gain Christ, be found in him. My goal is to know him, to know him. He even throws in sanctification, right? To know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to walk with him, become like him. And he throws in glorification, right? However possible, I may reach the resurrection from among the dead, right? Uh, all of this is, is for us in Jesus. As, as uh, 1 Corinthians 1 says, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus himself is our righteousness. He himself is our sanctification. He himself is our wisdom. He himself is our redemption. And this is important, not to separate the righteousness of Christ from his person, because sometimes I think we religious people, and I, and I, I put myself in, in this bucket too, I, we use theology to push God away, to keep him at bay. We want to have good theology and be right, I think, sometimes so that we don't have to embrace the mystery of relationship with God and reliance on the Holy Spirit. It's like we think that at heaven's gate, uh, as long as we can pass the theology quiz, everything's going to be fine. You know, James says the demons have better theology than us, (laughs) but they're not getting in. It's not about knowing the right, it's not, the point's not to be right, to have good theology, to believe the right things. The point is to know and love Jesus. The point is of the person, it's the relationship. We don't get his benefits without walking with him as a person. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. We should read that one more often. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So Christian, what can you do to remain in joy? Don't you want to? I want to rejoice in the Lord. And here's my answer for us this morning. Nothing. You don't have to do anything. You can take a deep breath. You can rest. You can rest in Christ. You you don't have to do anything, be anything, accomplish anything, improve at anything, impress anyone, justify yourself in front of anyone, especially the God of the universe. He's already done the justifying. If you're a Christian... You already have Jesus' perfect righteousness. You are known by God. God delights in you. I have trouble believing that. Don't you? I can't believe it's true, but it is. You are already... Ephesians 2 says, seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, where he plans to show you in the coming ages what are the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you. 
so you can rest in him. Now, it can be hard for us to rest. I'm not saying it's easy. But I just think it has to start here. I think it has to start here. And, you know, next week, Paul's going to say, I make every effort to take hold of it. He's going to talk about what he does. And there are things we do. But, but if any of our service, all of our ministry, all of our evangelism, all our discipleship, all our obedience, if any of it doesn't come from a deep place of resting in Christ, then it's off base. We have to start here. What if you found a quiet moment to sit with the Lord today, tomorrow, sometime this week? Not, not to impress him, not to pray for a need, not to check off your, you know, your checklist for doing your devotional every day, not to earn his favor, not to learn something, not to feel spiritual, but just to rest in him and enjoy him. Do you experience relationship with God like that? By his grace, may we come to truly know and to believe the love that he has for us. Let's pray. Father, when I, when I think of my own life and I consider um, myself, I, I know that I don't deserve your grace. Lord, I know that I, I couldn't stand by my own righteousness, not even close. So thank you for providing a perfect righteousness, a righteousness that's full and complete and free and mine forever. Thank you for caring for your people and making this way. Lord, there would be no way. Oh, <laughs> we, we could never be good enough but you've made it, you've done it. Jesus, you lived for us, you died for us, and you rose. And we thank you. Lord, would you, would you set us free by this truth? Would our hearts not be able to go back to trusting ourselves? Would our hearts not be able to start judging others, to be joyless, um, to, to think highly of ourselves. Would, would, we just, <laughs> would you protect us? Would we not be able, but instead, would we rest in the finished work of Christ? We need your help. Lord, if there's anyone in here who is, is, is standing on their own merit, who, who plans to stand before you on their own merit, who may not even believe in you, may not even believe you exist. I just pray that, that you would reveal yourself to them, that right now they would know your love, they would see your grace, and that they would trust you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.